Hello, I'm Dr. Lucy McBride, and welcome to my office. This is Beyond the Prescription, a show where I talk with people who are at the top of their fields about their health, their success, their struggles, and the relationship between all of it. I'm a primary care doctor in DC and a mom of three. In my over 20 years of practice, I've realized that patients are much more than the sum total of their cholesterol and their weight. That health is about much more than the absence of disease. So let's get into it and go beyond the prescription. I already know this is gonna be fun because Quadro is, I mean, where do I begin? There are not enough adjectives to describe my guest today. He is a doctor, he's a friend, he's a fellow advocate, for the holistic approach to caring for patients. He's an ICU doctor, a palliative care doctor based in Ottawa in Canada. He's made it his life's mission to care for patients and really to increase awareness about health and wellness through his online platform. He's also the host of Solving Wellness, which is an incredible podcast. He's leading conversations about how to improve healthcare in Canada and is really a model of the kind of doctor that I try to be Someone who cares about patients, cares about his family, cares about the community, and is trying to build bridges and build trust in medicine and in public health. Quadro and I got to know each other through the COVID pandemic because we're kind of speaking the same language. We're also together advocating for more common sense policies when it comes to kids and schools and balancing the harms of the virus with the harms of the mitigations, particularly when it comes to young people. Quadro's also been instrumental in helping us understand what it's like to be a black doctor in this landscape. He and I have talked offline about the blowback he's received in the pandemic, and I know you've experienced adversity in your life that's racially charged. And I want to talk about all of those things. I want to talk about everything from your badass Euler fandom to the way you appreciate patients from the inside out. Let's just get going, my friend. Let's, Let's do, this. do this thing. Let's do this. Okay. Tell me this. How is it, Quadro, that an ICU doctor, someone who cares for patients who are at their most vulnerable, most sick, has become this model for talking about integrated health, prevention, and how have you become this person that I admire so much? Number one, can I just say how excited I am to be on the show? And I'm glad you finally started this podcast because like, let's go. Like, let's be serious here. This is like your anthem. This is what you needed to do. Okay, Lucy McBride, you had so many good things to say and such a great message. So I'm so glad, number one, you started this and even more glad that I'm on the show. I'm already having fun. (laughs) But to answer your question, Lucy, about the approaches. So I I took a, a keen interest on how to be more efficient with our healthcare dollars because I saw how inefficient it was and I was really had an appreciation of the opportunity cost. Like if we're wasting money on X and we could be applying it to Y, like how much more benefit we could be providing in terms of healthcare. What put a lens on it for me of late was COVID. So when we saw, especially in that first wave, how the people that were getting sick were definitely elderly, immunocompromised, but then we also saw how unhealthy metabolically unhealthy our patients were and so that was a loud message to me saying like we need to talk about this and then learning more about how reversible some of this is if we were to think about what we eat thinking about being active 
thinking about our stress management and our own mental health, like how collectively we address these things that we could collectively get healthier and reduce our risk, not only of COVID, but other, you know, cancer, uh, cardiovascular uh, health and all these things. And then the, you take the next step of saying, like, really, if you're going to put money into anything, it's got to be prevention. Like, you land in ICU. People don't realize what an ICU admission is like. It's horrible. About a fifth of our patients don't survive their illness. They come out with PTSD, anxiety, depression, because, like, you know, you're in a state where you're, you're sedated. You can't express if you're hungry, thirsty, or in pain, or anxious. Like, it's very difficult to do these things, and you're in this state for weeks, sometimes months. And so the people that come out, not only they have mental health issues, they're not as strong as they used to be. And some people don't return to work and to enjoy all the stuff they used to enjoy. So if we think about number one way of trying to, you know, better our, our society, it's it's in prevention. I've been super passionate about it, just like you, Lucy. I'm just trying to keep up actually. When you take a step back and you think about what will serve us well collectively, it's prevention. It's huge. I love it when people agree with me, and I love it when people say nice things about me, but I also happen to agree with you. Canadian medicine has a lot of similar problems that American medicine has, which is that it's sort of damage control medicine, right? It's like we treat fires when they occur instead of treating the little embers that get going. So like you, and I'm a primary care doctor, so this is what I've been interested in my whole career, is I firmly believe that if we address... Nutrition, exercise physiology, sleep, stress management, our relationships with food, alcohol, each other, and our relationships with our own bodies and sort of thinking broadly about what it means to be healthy. It's not just not having cancer. It's not not having a heart attack. It's, it's having agency, tools, and information to manage our everyday health and well-being. Then we set people up to be their own best advocate and to be healthier from the, quote, inside out and not ultimately land in your ICU. And like you, it was clear from the early days of COVID that it was affecting nursing home residents, elderly, frail people, immunocompromised. But as you just said, my patients who were and are obese, have metabolic disorders, have diabetes, all of these things that have roots in our everyday habits and behaviors, not to say that it's people's fault, it's to say that people have more agency than they think they do. Those were clearly putting people at risk. We can ventilate and medicate people. We can also try to give them the tools they need to not have the, quote, underlying health conditions that put them at higher risk. Because at the end of the day, health is not just about having a doctor. It's about having tools in your own arsenal to manage your everyday health. Preach. And the thing that I think is underappreciated is how empowering it is for people and how much it amplifies. Like I can think of a, an example of one of our nurses that are actually one of our docs. Tom Saris, love you, big guy. He was easily about 30 pounds overweight prior to the pandemic, saw what he was seeing, was convinced that it was important now to improve his metabolic health, lost 30 pounds through a mix of low-carb and intermittent fasting. It was such an amplifier. People in the, in the ICU saw what was happening, asking him what he was doing and started to get behind the train. His family members seeing what, what was happening and that he lost his weight and it was important for him to stay healthy and look healthy and feel healthy and how much it improved things. And he'll tell you himself how, how much it improved his mental health, the way he felt, his ability to be well and be present with his patients because he's had that much more energy. And then even his patients seeing it, 
you know, and, and seeing that, you know, this is capable. He was able to do this and inspiring others that walk into his office to do the same. That's one of the most underrated parts I feel too, is like that it's empowering. You could be an example for many. And this is why I keep pushing. Yeah. This is why we keep pushing. But I also think that there's this illusion that self-care, if you will, which is kind of a, a word that people often roll their eyes at, but it's actually kind of relevant, doesn't have to be fancy, expensive, luxurious. In fact, you don't have to have like Pinterest perfect meals. You don't have to be wearing designer leggings and go to some yoga studio. As I tell patients all the time, even walking around the block twice after work is better than sitting on the sofa. Now you may want to sit on the sofa and no shame, no blame, my friend, if you sit on the sofa after work. I mean, geez. But there are simple ways to put yourself at the top of the to-do list that don't involve a lot of money and time. It's sort of just a prioritization of oneself. Absolutely. And I think this is one of the things that people don't realize. We started a platform, we called it Solving Wellness during the pandemic because of like staff were like yeah. done. They were burned out. They were leaving the profession. One of the things that we try and emphasize is the practical. Little things like getting fresh air and sometimes stacking things. Like if you're going to work out, work out in nature or work out. Just go for a walk in nature. If you want to listen to a podcast, you don't have to necessarily listen to it sitting down. You could just walk around the block, walk your dog, do your food prep while listening to a podcast or something like that. But making it simple and focusing on what's going to give you the biggest bang for your buck in terms of health or if it is like, you know, improving your metabolic health or if it is wellness, like really know what twists your crank. Is that an expression? I always get my metaphors mixed up. I mean, I'm buying it. I, I don't, I mean, whatever whatever you're selling, Quadro, I'll buy. So, so I'm cool with it. It's like exercise. You'll see all these Pinterest or IG folk and they're doing all these crazy workouts and this crazy yoga poses. I always tell people, find what works well for you. Right. You know, like, what do you love to do? It could be as simple as, you know, I got three kids. You got three kids. Playing ball outside with them during summer months, love it. Playing a little street hockey with the boys, love it. And that's high-quality exercise. They go on their scooters. I go for a run. Like, you know, anything that is practical, anything that you love to do, just find that thing that works for you. Yeah, so I think what you're saying, if you will, I would never want to speak for you, Quadro. Being healthy doesn't have to be fancy, doesn't have to be formal, doesn't have to be fanatical. I love alliteration, so it's like three Fs. And let's acknowledge that the realities of our lives often prohibit us from meeting our basic biological needs. But to meet them, sleeping, eating healthy, getting movement, connecting with other people is something that we can at least acknowledge as meaningful and then try to carve out space for. One quick thing I'll say about like the internet and social media is one easy way to find time, if you're anything like me, is to put the phone down, put down social media, because I think it's such an easy escape and it's such an easy way to kind of like think that we're treating ourselves to brain rest when actually it's really activating and it's a total time suck. I mean, this is a very cliche thing to say, but I think one way to find time is to limit our media consumption and social media consumption. Of course, not your podcast or this podcast or my Instagram feed, because that's naturally something you wouldn't want to stop <laughs> consuming. But I'm saying like in general, like one way to find time is to really kind of take stock of what it is your eyeballs and your brain are consuming and to make sure you're intentional about it. Cause that's free. I was just going to say be intentional and it's easier said than done. Cause like, 
the tech is there to suck us in. But man, you can really limit your, especially social media consumption. I feel like your quality of life, your mental health, just things open up. One of the hacks that I have, I got uh, one of them Apple Watches. One of the things I find the most easiest is to put my phone away when I get home. If I get notified or paged or whatever, like uh, even if I'm on call, it'll go through my watch. But I'm less likely to scroll and to see other things. Like, you know, what happens is uh, like Lucy sends you a text me like, yo, you need to be on the show. This show is so fresh and dynamic. You got to do this. And then, yeah, I answer. And then I'm like, oh, I wonder what the Oilers are thinking about doing on the off season and start scrolling. And then you got lured in. I always find like just putting the phone away. And if I need to be contacted, let it go through my watch. And that's a little hack that I find makes me less likely to be scrolling through the phone and at the same time being engaged with the kitties. You know, our brains only have so much space. And if we pack it full of noise, it's already noisy up there in my world, in my brain. So if I pack it full of like Instagram, TikTok and scroll mindlessly, then I I kind of lose my creativity and I lose my kind of curiosity about other things. Your, I think, lifelong interest in prevention and then this more recent kind of public facing role you've taken to help educate people about preventative medicine and being healthy from the inside out dovetails really nicely with what you and I have been talking about now for a long time in the COVID space. To me, COVID has laid bare how vulnerable we are as individuals, emotionally, socially, mentally, physically. It's also laid bare how vulnerable our healthcare system is, how People just don't have access to trusted, nuanced information. And even if they do have a doctor in the U.S., they often have five minutes. They are talking to them maybe about their COVID test, but not about the stress, anxiety, grief, and loss of living through a pandemic as a human. And my interest, like yours, has always been in the human experience of illness and thinking about health as more than the absence of disease. So, you know, I was lucky enough to meet you as a part of a group of doctors, physicians, scientists and public health experts who are advocating to more appropriately balance the harms of the virus with the harms of the mitigation measures themselves in schools and for kids. Because I think that you and I agree that, you know, a lot of our health habits, our behaviors, our relationships to food, our peers, our own bodies are formed in childhood. And a lot of people in my office as adults who struggle with addiction, diabetes, hypertension, cardiovascular disease, the roots of their habits and behaviors that inform those medical conditions are in childhood. And when you add a traumatic experience, like having your school closed for a year or not having access to Zoom to take your class or not having access to mentors and coaches and teachers in the educational space, that can have lasting effects on a child's and then adult's health and well-being. This is a long way of saying You and I have been shoulder to shoulder, lucky for me, working to advocate for more common sense policies vis-a-vis kids in schools. And it has not been without a cost. I have no regrets about what we have advocated for, and I think history will be kind to us, and so far is. And I truly believe that if you have the knowledge and tools and experience that you and I have as practicing physicians, that we should speak up if we have the ability to have a platform and root our advocacy in truth, transparency, and a respect for other people's points of view. And that's all been worth it to me. But it has not been without a cost. So I wonder, personally and professionally, I wonder if you could talk about what that advocacy has meant to you 
why you were part of it with us and what the hard parts of it were for you, if you're willing. It's something I've thought about a lot, Lucy, and, and I would agree that no matter what, if I had to do it all over again, I wouldn't change a thing. Like we all have our kind of line in the sand. We have where our values are. And for me personally, justice is a big one. And to be able to stick up for those that can't stick up for themselves. You know, that's how I was raised as a kid. My parents were role models in that way. You step up when people are getting knocked down. And our kids were getting annihilated as far as I'm concerned. When these are their primetime years. This is the years where, as you said, the formative. They, this is what's going to dictate their future and potentially their kids' future. Not only that, but even as a, similar to you, as an ICU doc, the people we see that are, you know, have poor metabolic health, that are, you know, obese, have mental health issues, that have substance abuse issues. It's many of them how their childhood experiences. So to not step up in a time when we could see how bad they were struggling baffled me. You know, I come from a province that had the longest school closures in North America. In June of 2021, we had one or two cases of COVID in the ICUs in the whole city and the city of a million, and our kids were still not in school, the only province in our country. And for me, who, and similar to you, have a platform to say nothing, to not advocate for this, to me, it was baffling. When you know that a child that's getting abused doesn't have a voice right now, and we're going to say that's okay, collectively, I don't think so. I could not live with myself. I couldn't look at myself in the mirror. Because at the end of the day, you got to be able to look at yourself in the mirror and say, am I doing the right thing? Am I doing what's best for myself, my community, my family? When I was approached by you and, and the urgency of normal group, I'm like, hell yeah, we need to do something. We need to say something. And such a genuine platform where that we were using evidence-based practice and iterative practice, like getting feedback from both sides to try and come up with an evidence-based recommendations for our kids. Beautiful. And then the blowback though, my God, you know what it was, Lucy? I think it really just really illustrated the amount of fear and anxiety that was percolating throughout society at this time, because it was out of control. The personal attacks, I mean, I had, you know, attacks towards my family, professional attacks, media trying to make it sound fringe. I won't lie. Like, it was a very challenging time. It was a, the closest I've come to burnout. But at the end of the day, would I do it again? Of course I would. Because, it, you know, I truly believe this amount of advocacy is what's allowed us to be in a, a better spot than we would have been, like I alluded to before. It's about looking yourself in the mirror. It's about sticking up for those that can't speak up for themselves. And one thing, Lucy, that I find extremely baffling still, though, is how we can let this happen. We knew from the beginning, if we ignore the needs of our kids, that damage is huge. I can't believe we could look ourselves in the mirror and say, hey, we won't worry about you. We got to do our thing. You know, you stay home. I know you're not getting a real education. I know that your mom will have to go to work and you guys won't be able to get your schooling in. I know that you might not have internet, but you know, this is what we're going to have to do. Literally in our province, there were over 100,000 kids that were just lost. Yep. They weren't registering at school. They were just lost. Yep. This is not okay. I mean, my eyes are so wide open, as yours are, to the kind of false dichotomies we set up in the public oh. sp square where we, we sort of say, well, you either protect against COVID or you 
open schools when actually the practice of medicine, caring for patients, caring for populations is about meeting people's broad human needs, right? It's not about one or the other. It's a both and. We can protect kids from COVID and protect them from learning loss, from social isolation, from depression, anxiety, abuse, malnutrition, from not getting fed at school. This idea that we have to pick is sort of flies in the face of what public health and what medicine is about. Like if I have a patient with diabetes and dementia and depression, remember I like the alliteration, the three Ds, like <laughs> I don't pick which one I'm going to address. I'm sort of always balancing those various issues. If your diabetes medicine is affecting your cognitive health and your dementia, then we fine tune the medication. So it's getting your blood sugar and not impairing your cognition more than it has to, right? It's about balancing risks. As I have said, as you have said, as we have been saying for so long in this group and elsewhere, eliminating risk isn't possible. Being human carries occupational risk. But Lucy, the other thing was we were ignoring data, like how little risk it was to kids. At the time, schools weren't a major source of spread. Like we ignored data. Right. We had the data. This is the stuff that was baffling me. Right. And the other part of it is just make it a priority know where our points of emphasis need to be. And kids in their education, you would think would be top notch. You know what I'm saying? Like Yes, kids, their education oh. and their safety from the harms of not having the normal contours of their lives. And this is the hill I will die on, is recognizing that just because you can't measure emotional distress, you cannot measure with a blood test or a PCR or a nose swab someone's social isolation or someone being bullied online or someone feeling lonely or detached from society by being locked up at home and you're not even locked up. I don't want to be hyperbolic. I mean, like just not being in school, not being on your baseball team, not participating with the regular parts of a childhood. Those things matter as much as a COVID test. And you're right. We really, really failed to appropriately look at data and to balance the harms of the virus with the harms of the mitigations. Here's one question I have for you how you can make the argument that it's inequitable to continue to have mask mandates and vaccine mandates and to keep kids isolated and quarantined from a virus in June 2022. I used to hesitate to say this, but now I don't care. It was a tactic. Their gloves were off and they're like, you know what? What's a theme that will hit home? And what's the theme de jour these days? EDI, equity. Well, let's say that masking equals equity and this urgency of normal is a racist approach. I'm like, this is a stretch, folks. I am sorry. You're talking to a doc that is, you know, had my own struggles dealing with systemic racism in healthcare and as an advocate for equity. And you're telling me, you're going to look at my face and say, this approach is inequitable. I'm like, come on, man. As you said, we're literally been trying to advocate for those that haven't had a voice, those that have been hit the hardest through COVID and the mitigation strategies. And we're trying to get them back to a reality that will allow them to thrive. Those folks trying to point towards urgency of equity or whatever, I'm telling you, I'm sorry. I'm not sure if this is kosher to say it, Lucy, but that was horse manure, man. That was absolute greasy tactic that made me sick to my stomach. I'm like, it was a slap in the face as far as I'm concerned. And using racism and equity, diversion, inclusion as a tactic, this is greasy. It was a greasy, desperate play that people could see through. That's why it got no juice. 
it really got no juice yeah. because people could see through that business. You and I 100% agree on that. I am still trying to really understand it. Like, I want to know what I don't know, especially as a white person and a privileged white person. I am fully aware of my potential and perhaps actual biases, right? Here's what I do understand. I understand that black and brown Americans and Canadians have been disproportionately affected by the virus. Full stop. I also understand that it's not the color of people's skin that's affecting them. It's poverty. It's lack of access to health care. It's all the underlying health conditions that you and I have discussed that have been exacerbated by the mitigations, which, of course, needed to be in place in 2020 March when, you know, we were like all hands on deck to figure out what the hell this virus is about, who it's affecting. All that made sense in the panicked days of the spring 2020. But as we learned more, as we got more data, as we saw exactly who the virus was affecting, we needed a more nuanced approach and we didn't do that. And I'm not saying that I have all the answers. I'm simply saying that for you and I, with firsthand experience seeing patients and caring for human beings for a living, I, like you, felt an obligation to speak up. And I'm still trying to process Honestly, authentically, and with great humility, because I realize I don't know everything. I'm not a moral authority. I'm a, a perpetual student of the human condition. What am I missing? I think we have massive structural problems in this country and in yours. We have massive inequities that predate COVID. We had a mental health crisis well before COVID-19, but that you know we poured kind of lighter fluid on a fire of these pre-existing structural problems and we needed to, in 2022, as we did in our advocacy work, zoom out and say, look, health is about emotional, social wellness. It's also about physical health. It's about having access to nuanced information and guidance. And it's about trust. And I'm still trying to understand how our message could ever be construed as anything but equitable. How do kids climb out of poverty and overcome their circumstances is through education. Mm. I'm literally just processing it as we're talking about it. I mean, it's just, I'm just still stunned by the reaction. I can take it. I realize like you that I'm stronger than I thought, but it's hard to believe in something so passionately. The belief being truth, transparency, and dispensing information without an agenda. And that that is somehow construed as racist or ableist. And that's, it's just, it's perplexing to me. I've been truly touched by folks expressing their gratitude with what we've done. This is, this is, sounds random, but we joined a lawn bowling club for <laughs> near our neighborhood and I'm rushing because we're late and I'm, my wife wanted me to pick up something at the grocery store. So I'm rushing in there. Someone just touches my shoulder and she says, are you Dr. K? And I'm like, yeah, yeah. And she said, I just wanted to wholeheartedly thank you for what you said advocating for our kids and just how much it meant to them to hear a voice instead of hearing all the stuff they were hearing on mainstream media all the time, why to be fearful, but hearing a voice that was saying, I hear you, we hear your concerns, and we want to address them because they're real. Both of us got a little bit verklempt when she started to talk about it, but there's so many people out there that aren't on the Twitter sphere necessarily not on IG, that are so grateful for the work that we've done. That is incredibly rewarding to think that we may have affected change in a positive way. I'm just disappointed that it's so hard to speak up, and I'm disappointed that it's brave or considered brave to speak the truth, which is why I want to keep on trucking Yeah, and why I'm just glad to know someone like you. 
Oh, and likewise, I agree with you how scary it was that we could be so uni-focused. And this is where I think you and I, we're good at our jobs because we do look at things holistically. Like my job in the ICU, people come in with, we call a multi-organ failure. A lot of their organs are doing poorly, right? And so sometimes you'll ask a kidney specialist their opinion. Sometimes you'll ask a heart specialist their opinion on how to manage a patient. But my job is to consider both because sometimes the best treatment for the kidney is results in worse treatment for the heart or worse treatment for the lung. And so you have to, by your nature of your job, look at things holistically if you want to do best by the patient. Similar to you in your office, when you're looking at, you know, their diabetes management, how are they sleeping? How is their social circles? How are their mental health? You have to look at things with a wide lens to provide the optimal care. And it's the same thing with COVID. I don't know why it would be any different that we wouldn't approach it this way. Yes, we want to make sure our hospitals aren't overwhelmed. Yes, we want to make sure that the virus doesn't go crazy. But we also need to think about mental well-being. We need to think about cancer screening. We need to think about our elective surgeries. What happens if we don't keep up with those? We got to think about the staff's well-being. How are we going to staff units if people are leaving healthcare? For some reason, it was controversial to talk about the economy, but I'm sorry, socioeconomics is health. A hundred percent. It's health. So like, you can't ignore these things and then just be like, oh, you know, let's lock it down endlessly because everything's got to be about COVID. It can't be that way. March 2020, different story. We didn't know what the hell, whatever. But moving forward, holy cow, like, I just can't believe people that are paid to critically think could not critically think at all. Maybe I'm editorializing a bit here, but the lack of critical thinking was what completely baffled me. One thing though, I will say though, a lot of that is we were making decisions from a fear perspective. Like when you're doing fear-based decision-making, you're never making sound decisions. I'm sorry. And I've seen it all the time within medicine. I've seen it in life choices. The worst case scenario all the time you're not going to thrive. You're not going to, you're not going to excel. You're not going to make the best decision. And I think that's part of why we handled things the way we did. What I was seeing from the get-go from March 2020 in my individual patients is that when fear was in the driver's seat of their decision-making, like then they didn't feel physically well, they weren't sleeping, they weren't eating well, they were acting out and having coping strategies that weren't advantageous for their health. And then also, even when they were vaccinated, people were continuing to avoid regular parts of their life that they should have started engaging in. Not that I'm here to tell people how to live their lives, but fear was becoming a phenomenon in and of itself. People were sort of paralyzed by fear. And I felt an obligation to help people frame the data better so they could turn the volume down on fear when it was appropriate and turn the volume up on their own rational judgment in order to meet their broader human needs which is, again, not to shame people for being anxious about a virus. Obviously, there are reasons to be anxious. And then on a public health front, when you're making decisions that are fear-based, like you're afraid of political ramifications for having a certain policy, or you're afraid of being labeled a racist or an ableist for advocating for one way of thinking about policies, then people are silenced and things don't change. And like you, I wasn't raised to sit back and just observe a train crashing. I was raised to kind of stand up and advocate and try to speak the truth and also to learn and not be a victim of confirmation bias and to be aware of my own intrinsic biases. So I've learned alongside you and I've learned a lot in the last 
two years more than I ever thought I would. And I do have hope. I do have hope. I have hope that we can better advocate for kids and mental health and that we are making progress. I think we have a lot of healing to do from the last two years. And I think kids in particular have suffered disproportionately. And I think it's going to be a long road ahead. We got to be ahead of the curve instead of just being responsive. We got to be proactive. Like, what are we going to do to catch our kids up in terms of education? Is there talk of that? Instead of talking on the media about X, Y, Z, fearing, like more fear-based coverage about some rather, like, let's talk about what we can do to reverse some of this damage. Yep. Are we going to have more after-school programs? Are we going to invest in more teachers or teacher's aid so that we can improve class sizes? Are we going to offer discount or subsidized mental health services for our kids? Are we going to proactively talk about mental health issues within our schools or what have you? Like, let's think right now or act even, not even think, act. Do something right now to address what we know is coming. Yep. You know what I'm saying? Like, we have kids in university right now. One and a half or two years of some of these kids that didn't have in-person schooling. I'm sorry. It's not the same like, I don't know if you could cuss on the show. I did. I mean, Sorry, but, bring it. But it's wrong. But like these kids, they're your future engineers, future doctors, psychologists, and they haven't had in-person learning. What are we going to do to catch these folks up? What are we going to do to enhance their experience? Instead of just like, oh, okay, maybe tomorrow we'll take off their mask of their triple vaxxed 21-year-old that is healthy as an ox. Maybe we should make sure they have their fourth vax before they enter campus. Like, come on. That's not the news. The news is what are we going to do to pick them up, to help them to thrive? That's the news. Quadro, amen, hallelujah, make it a double. (laughs) Make it a double. Tell me, my friend, how Solving Wellness, this incredible podcast you have, is using what you've learned in your career, but also in the last two years to solve for what you're just talking about. I think on our show, like we really try to empower not only individuals, but healthcare providers on some of these issues and say, you can rise up. You want to improve the health of your patients, the mental health, their physical health, the metabolic profile. Here are some of the tools. Here are some of the ways you could do that. We're just trying to empower folks and to inspire folks. We call it changing the boogie on the show. We could change the boogie. We could change the narrative. We don't have to be part of the norm. We could approach things from a unique way, but with the lens of we're going to solve the problem. We're not just going to talk about it. We're not just going to whine about how things are. We are talking about solutions, and we want to inspire that people will act. Not to get too preachy, Lucy, but my career where I'm at today is because I've leaned on action over analysis. When we decided to do the podcast, that took 10 days to set up. When we decided to launch a charity for Bridges Over Barriers for underserved kids, that took about two weeks to set up. When we started a fundraise for Feed the Frontline staff, that was three or four days. Black mentorship program, two weeks. Just do it. Fail fast and magic will happen. You will be a vector for change. You know, I just try and keep inspiring. I try and keep moving the needle. And I know I'm not alone here. That's why, you know, Lucy, that's why I think you and I get along so well. It's all about changing the boogie. You know what I'm saying? I mean, I love it. There's so many things that we cannot change that we have to accept. There's so many things that we can change. 
And it starts with self-awareness. It starts with insight. It starts with connecting the dots between your everyday health and your behaviors. And it starts with, as you just have said, action over analysis. I mean, obviously we needed some analysis, but doing it and modeling advocacy, modeling, speaking for people who don't have voices and just making things happen. And that's what you're doing. It's amazing. I always wrap with one question. If you were to give one piece of mental health advice to someone who is struggling right now, say a young person, someone who's feeling down and out, what would that piece of mental health advice be? This will be one and a half answers. My one advice is be yourself because you're enough. Be your authentic self. You are enough. You do not have to be a certain way to try and fit in. The sooner you realize that you are beautiful who you are, it'll be much easier to get through some of these tough times. Because I think a lot of anguish, a lot of issues when it comes to mental health is not feeling like you could be you. You know, we saw a lot of this in the pandemic. and But being your authentic self is so important. And also, don't be shy to reach out for help. I think a lot of people put on a, their armor thinking that they're warriors. And just like you need help with diabetes, like you need help with a broken limb. You may need help with your mental health. So reach out for help if you need it, but also be true to yourself. Quadro, those are such awesome words to live by. And I, I can't thank you enough for joining me today. I just look forward to working more with you and learning from you and your amazing TikTok. I love when you get on there with your Oilers gear. It's amazing. I'm not even a hockey fan, but like I'm an Oilers fan now. <laughs> Oh, well, thank you. Honestly, Lucy, I want you to keep doing what you're doing. You've inspired me to put on my wings, and you know we're going to be collaborating more and more. Those that haven't heard Lucy on our show, she was dropping knowledge all over the place. <laughs> it was knowledge drop, microphone dropping, knowledge dropping. But uh, this is truly, uh, I'm lucky to be here. Thank you so much for having me. This was a lot of fun. Thank you all for listening to Beyond the Prescription. Please don't forget to subscribe, like, download and share the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you catch your podcasts. I'd be thrilled if you liked this episode to rate and review it. The views expressed on this show are entirely my own and do not constitute medical advice for individuals. Such advice must be obtained from your personal physician. 